everyone in broadband land, and welcome to another episode of The Broadband Bunch. I'm your host, Brad Hine, bringing you stats, stories, and samples from the world of broadband. Today, we're continuing to follow up on a fabulous conference we attended months ago in San Diego, California. The R-Time Conference, which is the largest conference for rural independent broadband providers in the NTCA, was in full swing. Our guest today is Claire Andonoff. She's a telecommunications attorney with Herman and Whitaker. She assists clients with federal subsidies, regulatory, spectrum, and transactional matters. Claire specializes in advocating for the Federal Communications Commission and Congress and other federal agencies. Claire currently serves as the chair on the Associate Member Advisory Council of the NTCA, which is the Rural Broadband Association, where she represents the interests of rural independent telecommunications carriers and cooperatives. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brad. Very happy to be here. Well, it was sure great to meet you in San Diego. I will say, um, while we were in San Diego, my counterpart Joe and I were asking the NTCA staff who we could speak to, to kind of better understand the current regulatory demands and promotion and advocacy of these rural broadband providers and their vendors. And everybody said, you have to speak to Claire. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Well, so as we know, uh, rural broadband providers are critical in keeping our communities connected. So whether it's school, work, healthcare, family, friends, uh, the list goes on. The NTCA plays a really important role in this knowledge transfer, and you do also. So tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing with the NTCA and perhaps an overview of Herman and Whitaker, too. Sure. Well, let me start with uh, with Herman and Whitaker. We are a boutique law firm based out of Washington, D.C. We really specialize in telecom law, um, although we also have a, an attorney who specializes in corporate law, uh, Carrie DeVere. And so we do a lot of transactions as well as any sort of FCC compliance. Um, as, as you mentioned before, Brad, we do a lot of, I guess, well, lobbying before the FCC and NTIA and um, RUS and also at, um, in front of Congress. And so we really make sure that our clients and our clients are rural um, independent telcos. We make sure that they are in compliance with FCC rules. Um, we also assist them with acquiring spectrum and with acquiring uh, subsidies through the Universal Service Fund. Uh, my role with NTCA is I serve on AMAC, which stands for Associate Member Advisory Council. And I am the chair of AMAC. Um, basically, AMAC represents the interests of associate members at in NTCA. Associate members are the, basically the non-telcos, the non-carriers. So we are um, the people who are vendors and basically help telcos out either through through law compliance, our attorneys, or through engineering, uh, marketing, and that sort of stuff. Uh, so AMAC also provides um, seminars. We also provide uh, educational material to the members. Usually at a conference, we will have at least one panel where we'll have a session on something that's going on currently in rural um, broadband land. So you talked a little bit about... Um... Uh, the seminars and workshops that you guys set up. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit more about um, how often you're doing that? I know that you're uh, you're current in doing that uh, once a year at our time. Can you can you go into maybe a little bit of that interaction that you have during that time? 
Sure. So usually AMAC will um, sponsor at least one uh, panel or one session. I think at our time we did uh, two. One was on, you know, broadband funding. And then I think the other one was on uh, 5G and what what that means for rural broadband and 5G being um, mobile 5G. Um, we, we also usually have a, a panel discussion at the summer symposiums. Uh, last year we did one on um, working from home. And I think the year prior we did one on marketing. Um, then we will also have a seminar at the fall conference which we are still currently deciding on what what the topic should be. So you talked about um, working for Herman and Whitaker. I know you're in telecom law. Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit how you got involved. Maybe your path, starting with your degree and up through law school, and kind of how you got involved with telecom that way. Sure. So I I graduated from uh, the University of Virginia. I got my uh, undergrad there. And then I always knew I was going to go uh, to law school. Actually, my my father was an attorney. Uh, he he passed away when I was young, so I always knew that I sort of wanted to follow in his footsteps. Uh, so I went to Catholic University, which is in Washington D.C. Catholic actually has a telecom program, which I became very interested in. So I joined that program, and through that program, um, I had a few internships as was required through the program. So I worked at uh, the Federal Trade Commission where I learned a little bit about antitrust, which does seem to be applicable to uh, telecom a lot. And then I also worked at NTIA. And then last but not least, I worked at the Federal Communications Commission, where I worked for a commissioner, um, Deborah Taylor Tate. Oh, so tell us a little bit about working for the FCC. How was it working for a federal government? Well, it was really nice because I, I did that uh, my third year of law school. I did it actually both semesters, and I really got to learn a lot because at the time, I was working on the eighth floor. Since I was working for a commissioner, I was working on the eighth floor. Now the FCC has recently relocated, so the commissioners are now on the 10th floor, but at the time they were on the eighth floor. And so I got to really know a lot about, on, on a high level, about all the top current events that are going on in telecom. So I think the year that I worked there, uh, there were a lot of mergers going on. So, so what interested you specifically about the FCC? Is there anything specific that you started to get involved with that you really started to uh, be attracted to? Well, honestly, what I liked when I went to law school, I sort of became concerned that law could be, could maybe possibly become a little bit boring. Um, because it's sort of all like, for example, with property law, it's always the same and it's based on precedent that's been around for hundreds of years. When I started to learn more about telecom law, I, I thought this is what is for me because it is always changing. Technology is always changing and so the regulations have to always change. And so you're always seeing new things come out of the FCC. And that I sort of liked is that you're constantly learning something new. So, um after your three in internships, which uh, when you initially told me that, I thought, man, that's a lot of work. You, you're you a total overachiever, but it sounds like it's a requirement for anyone who's a uh, um, telecommunications law major. Is that true? That's correct. So, I mean, I think in law school, you usually don't have a major, but Catholic University did offer a program, the telecom program, which gives you a special certificate in telecom law. And yeah, there were there were requirements um, that you take a certain amount of courses and that you also have at least three internships. And actually, I also served on the Telecom Journal at uh, Catholic University. Oh, wow. 
Wow. So post-internship, you started to get more involved directly with uh, telecommunications. So kind of talk about that in your timeline and where you where you ventured to next. Sure. So um, actually in law school, I started working for a small boutique uh, telecom law firm also based out of Washington, D.C. And then I continued on there after I graduated working that, not just as a law clerk, but as an attorney. Um, that firm really specialized in spectrum acquisition. Worked there for, I think, about four or five years. Um, we really specialized actually in the 2.5 gigahertz band. And for those of you who don't know, the 2.5 band um, was EBS or Educational Broadband Service. It was a band that the FCC years and years ago actually uh, designated for educational entities and nonprofit institutions and basically allowed these entities to just apply for the license instead of having to pay for it through an auction. Um, the idea was that they could use the licenses for instructional um, broadcasting. However, a lot in a lot of schools did apply for these and nonprofit um, institutions did as well. But the problem was they didn't really have the know-how how to build out a system. So eventually the FCC did allow um, these these schools and nonprofits to lease to a commercial company where the commercial company would build out for them and then use a portion for themselves. Um, in the beginning, it was used for broadcast and then the, the band actually transitioned to uh, broadband. So if you are familiar, just recently, uh, the FCC auctioned the remaining 2.5 off and they had and they did open it up for um, commercial entities to to buy that. And so that was auction 108, which just concluded, I think, a year ago. When you and I were talking initially, um, you told me a, a great story that it, I think it's in tandem with uh, this 2.5 spectrum that you were advocating on the side of uh, a couple tribal nations and uh, maybe some successes you had with uh, getting tribal nations served with, with broadband, but actually before the 2.5 auction by the FCC. Yep. So um, we do represent a few uh, tribal nations. Uh, we have them as clients and they came to us specifically about the 2.5 band because they were interested on how to acquire um, some spectrum spectrum so that they could build out on their own a network covering their tribal nation or their reservation. Since as, as you may know, a lot of tribal nations are really poorly under are very badly underserved. And so they wanted to go ahead and do that themselves, but they did need access to licensed spectrum. So before the FCC um, initiated auction 108, we went in and petitioned the FCC many times and lobbied them asking for there to first be before they auction it off for them to have a filing window where basically tribal nations can apply for a license that covers their, um, their territory. And the FCC did grant that. And so I think almost all tribal nations that were eligible to, to basically apply for this license did apply and have received it. That's fabulous. So in advocating for the tribal nations, obviously, you know, your role on the AMAC, uh, on that committee, you know, you're, you're advocating for um, all the broadband independent rural uh, providers out there. So can you talk to us a little bit about uh, I know there's a there's a ton of interest with the NTIA maps. I know there were former FCC maps. You and I spoke about it while we were in San Diego. Talk to me a, about the importance of these maps and maybe where they are today. 
Uh, sure. So the FCC recently, um, or they've been charged by Congress with putting together a more granular broadband map. Um, so they have, uh, as some of you might be familiar, um, the FCC used to collect 477 data, which would show coverage. They have now switched that to the broadband data collection or BDC. Um, they, they do have the first iteration of the map available. You can find that on the web. Um, however, I would say that it's, it's um, a work in progress. Um, some we've noticed when I've looked at it with some of our clients, we've noticed that it seems like a lot of fixed wireless providers overstate their coverage, um, stating that they can cover large areas with 100 over 20. And while that might be true that they could serve one location within that area, if all of those locations asked for 120 at the same time, it seems very unlikely that they could. And the problem with overstating their coverage is that the broadband map now looks like, oh, we're, we're all covered. We don't need any more. We don't need any more broadband in these areas. But that's really not the case. And and funding moving forward, whether that's through the FCC or NTIA or RUS, really they're required to look at these broadband maps. So those areas where where are, that are potentially overstated or inaccurate will be ineligible for funding, which is not great because then those people years down the road will all still not have adequate broadband. So these these maps. Um... Are going to they're going to become the standard? I mean, uh, it looks like right now maybe these maps, or I, I won't say it's in their infancy, but I was looking through um, a few maps earlier this week. I know there's a digital divide index I was looking at, and it's it's really interesting to me drilling down in some of these rural areas that um, you know I live in a, a metro area like you, and uh, we have fiber to the home. We probably have 50 devices connected here at mm -hmm. my house here for for uh, remote work in school. And even, you know, we have remote, remote healthcare appointments sometimes, but that's not always true. You drill down in these rural areas and I'm seeing information where um, not only there is poor capacity currently, but there are folks still without connectivity at all, like without cell phones or without proper cell phone um, connections. So their cell phones are, are only feeding mm -hmm. a little bit of data at a time, but it's interesting to me um, how this has evolved from, like you said, 477 through uh, the broadband data collection with the current NTIA maps and the other maps that we're trying to use um, for reference for all this. Would you say we're kind of on the 1.5 version or are we yet at the 2.0 version yet? I think 1.5 sounds right. Look, the FCC will continue to collect information twice a year, right? And the challenges are ongoing. So if you go into, the, if you look at the broadband map and you look up your address and it says, oh yeah, you, you get gigabit service here. And you're like, no, I do not get gigabit service. You can go in and, and challenge that. And then the FCC will remove that from, from their maps. Um, I think what we're seeing though, that there is sort of an issue, or there does seem to be trouble with doing a bulk challenge. So saying an entire area is actually not covered. Um, so I think the FCC is working on improving that challenge process. I guess just like anything, it's, you know, it's, it's still a bit new and uh, we're refining it along the way. I know there's going to be some updates to those maps with the data before some of the June announcements this year, which will be really important. Um, regarding getting people connected, I know there's an issue, there's also an issue of just affordability too. So I know 
uh, you talked about universal service. Could you explain to our listeners a little bit about exactly what universal service means? Sure. So universal service, um, if you look at your phone bill, you might see, you'll probably see a line item at the bottom that says universal service fee. And that is something that you pay into the universal service fund, or really that the carrier pays into. And then that that fund, which tends to be about, in recent years, it's been about eight to $9 billion, is used to make sure that everybody is connected to the internet. Um, because honestly, if you think about it, what's the use of the internet if you can't connect to everyone? Um, so in certain areas of the country, it's very spread out and it's very expensive to build out. In fact, a business model doesn't make sense because it's really expensive to build out because everyone's spread out. And then you also are getting less subscribers. And so universal service provides a subsidy to carriers who are willing to build out in what, in what is called high cost areas. That subsidy, so then they are able to build out and they are required to, um, so that everyone does have coverage. The universal service also provides um, subsidies to educational entities so that they all have, they have broadband internet. Mm -hmm. And then also to rural hospitals and then to um, low income people through the Lifeline program. The Lifeline program is actually only for telephone service. It is not for broadband, but the uh, FCC recently did put together an ACP program which I think is, stands for Affordable Connectivity Program. And that provides a subsidy for broadband. Um, that currently is not under universal service. It's actually, it was an appropriations from Congress under the Infrastructure Act. And that um, basically Congress funded that for $14 billion. However, um, a concern is that if everybody who would who is eligible for ACP did apply for it, that fund might could easily be exhausted within two years. So I don't know what we'll see in two years, whether the FCC will add that to universal service um, or whether Congress will continue to make appropriations so that low-income people can get a subsidy to get broadband. Wow. Well, certainly uh, affordability is a huge thing, especially in these rural areas. I think I did. Did I read that there was like 14, 15 billion dollar chunk of money that's uh, connected to the ACP, the Affordable Connectivity Program? That's correct. It's a little bit over 14 billion. Wow. So um, what's the chance that something that, like this may end up growing? Uh, is this is this outside of the infrastructure uh, fund that's coming or is this a part of this? Uh, this is a part of it. Um, so it, it was part of the Infrastructure Act. Yeah, so the 65 billion, it's part of that. BEAD is taking up a, a, a large chunk of that. I think BEAD is about $45.45 billion. Um, and gotcha. then $14 billion is for the ACP. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Claire, when you are not fighting the good fight for the rural uh, independent broadband folks of America, what what are you doing in your spare time? Uh, well, I, I think, um, let's see, I like to watch hockey. I'm a big Cavs fan, although they kind of disappointed me this year. They didn't make the... Um, the playoffs. And oh. I also am a big Formula One fan, um, which is the, the season has just sort of begun. Um, unfortunately, I'm a Ferrari fan and they have not been doing so well. But I will, let's say they're racing this weekend. And then actually in May, I am going to go see them in Italy. Oh, wow. Fabulous. Yeah. A world traveler also. So um, <laughs> like all of our episodes, I have to ask as we're 
coming to a close or we start to wrap up our episode here, there's a couple of questions we ask everybody. And one of them is called the back to the future question. And it's very simply, Claire, if, if you were to go back in time and you're DeLorean and speak to yourself or give yourself a little bit of advice before you started your telecommunications law uh, path and career, is there anything specifically that you might tell yourself to help you along the way? Uh, you know, I, I think a, a trait that I have, um, which I've always taken pride in, is that I'm a very loyal person. And I think if I were to look back and, and tell my younger self some advice, I would say, don't forget to be loyal to yourself and to your own goals and aspirations. And also be clear with um, your employer and your colleagues what those goals and aspirations are. And if your employer doesn't seem to agree with those, it might not be a great fit. And don't fear moving forward because you need to be loyal to yourself first. Wise advice. Wise advice. So <laughs> on the flip side of that, maybe our crystal ball question, um, where do you see um, the industry going in terms of uh, rural independent broadband providers in the next 5, 10 20 years, how do you see this shaping up? Obviously, there's a very large fund coming from the government this year that we, mm -hmm. we may not see a lot of in the future. We don't know. But where do you see all this headed in the future? Well, I think we're about to see a lot of changes. Um, and especially because there is such a large, unprecedented amount of money that is being pumped into rural broadband, that once that money is spent, what are we going to see in terms of universal service? Is there still going to be a need? In my opinion, yes, there will still be a need, but will Congress and will the FCC still consider there a need? And if universal service starts to decline, that might be a, a big issue for rural telecom. I think mm. um, it's very important that rural telcos really get in front of Congress and the FCC right now and tell them we, we're st we still need money for maintenance and operation and upgrades moving forward, even after all of this need funding is spent. Wow. Wow. More great advice. Well, Claire, as we wrap up this episode of the Broadband Bunch podcast, I'd like to thank you specifically for all the work you're doing to educate and support these rural broadband independent initiatives, uh, your role with the NTCA and helping to keep all the vendors that serve the providers in check too is, is invaluable. Um, we definitely love to connect with you next year at our time if we could and kind of get an updated report on what transpires in the second half of 2023. Um, and also for our listeners that maybe want more info on what you do or your, uh, your committee or on Herman and Whitaker and the work you're doing there, how can they get in touch with you and your company? Um, well, you can go to our website, hermanandwhitakerllc.com, or you can always send me an email. Unfortunately, my email is a little bit long, but it's C Andanov and Andanov is spelled A-N-D-O-N-O-V at hermanwhitaker.com. And Whitaker is spelled W-H-I-T-E-A-K-E-R. Or you can always call me at 703-973-9470. And I would love to hear from you guys. And thank you, Brad, for having me. And um, I look forward to talking to you again next year. Oh, my pleasure entirely. And to Claire and all our listeners on the Broadband Bunch podcast today, I won't say goodbye, but for a little while, so long. Talk soon, everyone. Mm -hmm.